Part sixteen of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, July the fifteenth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter twenty seven. The figure descended the great stairs steadily, steadily, always verging like a weight in deep water to the black gulf at the bottom. Mr. Gradgrind, apprised of his wife's decease, made an expedition from London and buried her in a business-like manner. He then returned with the promptitude to the national cinder-heap and resumed his sifting for the odds and ends he wanted and his throwing of the dust about into the eyes of other people who wanted other odds and ends. In fact, resumed his parliamentary duties. In the meantime, Mrs. Sparsit kept on winking watch and ward, separated from her staircase all the week by the length of iron road dividing coketown from the country house she yet maintained her cat-like observation of louisa through her husband through her brother through james harthouse through the outsides of letters and packets through everything animate and inanimate that at any time went near the stairs your foot on the last step my lady said mrs sparsit apostrophizing the descending figure with the aid of her threatening mitten, and all your art shall never blind me. Art or nature, though, the original stock of Louisa's character, or the graft of circumstances upon it, her curious reserve did baffle, while it stimulated, one as sagacious as Mrs. Sparsit. There were times when Mr. James Harthouse was not sure of her. There were times when he could not read the face he had studied so long, and when this lonely girl was a greater mystery to him, than any woman of the world with a ring of satellites to help her. So the time went on, until it happened that Mr. Bounderby was called away from home by business, which required his presence elsewhere for three or four days. It was on a Friday that he intimated this to Mrs. Sparsit at the bank, adding, But you'll go down tomorrow, ma'am, all the same. You'll go down just as if I was there. It will make no difference to you. Pray, sir returned Mrs. Sparsit, reproachfully. Let me beg you not to say that. Your absence will make a vast difference to me, sir, as I think you very well know. Well, ma'am, then you must get on in my absence as well as you can, said Bounderby, not displeased. Mr. Bounderby, retorted Mrs. Sparsit, your will is to me a law, sir. Otherwise it might be my inclination to dispute your kind commands not feeling sure that it will be quite so agreeable to Miss Gradgrind to receive me, as it ever is to your own munificent hospitality. But you shall say no more, sir. I will go upon your invitation. Why, when I invite you to my house, ma'am, said Bounderby, opening his eyes, I should hope you want no other invitation. No, indeed, sir, returned Mrs. Sparsit. I should hope not. Say no more, sir. I would, sir, I could see you gay again. What do you mean, ma'am? blustered Bounderby. Sir, rejoined Mrs. Sparsit, there was wont to be an elasticity in you, which I sadly miss. Be buoyant, sir. Mr. Bounderby, under the influence of this difficult adjuration, backed up by her compassionate eye, could only scratch his head in a feeble and ridiculous manner, and afterwards assert himself at a distance, by being heard to bully the small fry of business all the morning. Bitzer, 
said mrs sparsit that afternoon when her patron was gone on his journey and the bank was closing present my compliments to young mr thomas and ask him if he would step up and partake of a lamb chop and walnut ketchup with a glass of india ale young mr thomas being usually ready for anything in that way returned a gracious answer and followed on its heels mr thomas said mrs sparsit these plain viands being on table i thought you might be tempted thank you mrs sparsit said the whelp and gloomily fell to how is mr harthouse mr tom asked mrs sparsit oh he's all right said tom where may he be at present mrs sparsit asked in a light conversational manner after mentally devoting the whelp to the furies for being so uncommunicative he's shooting in yorkshire said tom sent lou a basket half as big as a church yesterday kind of gentleman now said mrs sparsit sweetly whom one might wager to be a good shot crack said tom he had long been a down-looking young fellow but this characteristic had so increased of late that he never raised his eyes to any face for three seconds together mrs sparsit consequently had ample means of watching his look if she were so inclined mr harthouse is a great favourite of mine said mrs sparsit as indeed he is of most people may we expect to see him again shortly mr tom why i expect to see him to-morrow returned the whelp good news cried mrs sparsit blandly i've got an appointment with him to meet him in the evening at the station here said tom and i'm going to dine with him afterwards i believe he's not coming down to nickett's for a week or so being due somewhere else at least he says so but i shouldn't wonder if he was to stop here over sunday and stray that way which reminds me said mrs sparsit would you remember a message to your sister mr tom if i was to charge you with one well i'll try returned the reluctant whelp if it isn't a long un it is merely my respectful compliments said mrs sparsit and i fear that i may not trouble her with my society this week being still a little nervous and better perhaps by my poor self oh if that's all observed tom it wouldn't matter much even if i was to forget it for lou's not likely to think of you unless she sees you having paid for his entertainment with this agreeable compliment he relapsed into a hang-dog silence until there was no more india ale left when he said well mrs sparsit i must be off and went off next day saturday mrs sparsit sat at a window all day long looking at the customers coming in and out watching the postman keeping an eye on the general traffic of the street revolving many things in her mind but above all keeping her attention on her staircase the evening come she put on her bonnet and shawl and went quietly out having her reasons for hovering in a furtive way about the station by which a passenger would arrive from yorkshire and for preferring to peep into it round pillars and corners and out of ladies waiting-room windows to appearing in its precincts openly tom was in attendance and loitered about until the expected train came in it brought no mr harthouse tom waited until the crowd had dispersed and the bustle was over and then referred to a posted list of trains and took counsel with porters that done he strolled away idly stopping in the street and looking up it and down it and lifting his hat off and putting it on again and yawning and stretching himself 
and exhibiting all the symptoms of mortal weariness to be expected in one who had still to wait until the next train should come in an hour and forty minutes hence this is a device to keep him out of the way said mrs sparsit starting from the dull office window when she had watched him last harthouse is with his sister now it was the conception of an inspired moment and she shot off with her utmost swiftness to work it out the station for the country house was at the opposite end of the town the time was short the road not easy but she was so quick in pouncing on a disengaged coach so quick in darting out of it producing her money seizing her ticket and diving into the train that she was borne along the arches spanning the land of coal-pits past and present as if she had been caught up in a cloud and whirled away all the journey immovable in the air though never left behind plain to the dark eyes of her mind as the electric wires which ruled a colossal strip of music-paper out of the evening sky were plain to the dark eyes of her body mrs sparsit saw her staircase with the figure coming down very near the bottom now upon the brink of the abyss an overcast september evening just at nightfall saw beneath its drooping eyelid mrs sparsit glide out of her carriage pass down the wooden steps of the little station into a stony road cross it into a green lane and become hidden in a summer growth of leaves and branches one or two late birds sleepily chirping in their nests and a bat heavily crossing and recrossing her and the reek of her own tread in the thick dust that felt like velvet were all mrs sparsit heard or saw until she very softly closed a gate she went up to the house keeping within the shrubbery and went round it peeping between the leaves at the lower windows most of them were open as they usually were in such warm weather but there were no lights yet and all was silent she tried the garden with no better effect she thought of the wood and stole towards it heedless of long grass and briars of worms snails and slugs and all the creeping things that be with her dark eyes and her hooked nose warily in advance of her mrs sparsit softly crushed her way through the thick undergrowth so intent upon her object that she probably would have done no less if the wood had been a wood of adders hark the smaller birds might have tumbled out of their nests fascinated by the glittering of mrs sparsit's eyes in the gloom as she stopped and listened low voices close at hand his voice and hers the appointment was a device to keep the brother away there they were yonder by the felled tree bending low among the dewy grass mrs sparsit advanced closer to them she drew herself up and stood behind a tree like robinson crusoe in his ambuscade against the savages so near to them that at a spring and that no great one she could have touched them both he was there secretly and had not shown himself at the house he had come on horseback and must have passed through the neighbouring fields for his horse was tied to the meadow side of the fence within a few paces my dearest love said he what could i do knowing you were alone was it possible that i could stay away you may hang your head to make yourself the more attractive i don't know what they see in you when you hold it up thought mrs sparsit but you little think my dearest love whose eyes are on you that she hung her head was certain she urged him to go away she commanded him to go away but she neither turned her face to him nor raised it 
yet it was remarkable that she sat as still as ever the amiable woman in ambuscade had seen her sit at any period in her life her hands rested in one another like the hands of a statue and even her manner of speaking was not hurried my dear child said harthouse mrs sparsett saw with delight that his arm embraced her will you not bear with my society for a little while not here where louisa not here but we have so little time to make so much of and i have come so far and i am altogether so devoted and distracted there never was a slave at once so devoted and ill-used by his mistress to look for your sunny welcome that has warmed me into life and to be received in your frozen manner is heart-rending am i to say again that i must be left to myself here but we must meet my dear louisa where shall we meet they both started the listener started guiltily too for she thought there was another listener among the trees it was only rain beginning to fall fast in heavy drops shall i ride up to the house a few minutes hence innocently supposing that its master is at home and will be charmed to receive me no your cruel commands are implicitly to be obeyed though i am the most unfortunate fellow in the world i believe to have been insensible to all other women and to have fallen prostrate at last under the foot of the most beautiful and the most engaging and the most imperious my dearest louisa i cannot go myself i cannot go myself or let you go in this hard abuse of your power mrs sparsett saw him detain her with his encircling arm and heard him then and there within her mrs sparsett's greedy hearing tell her how he loved her and how she was the stake for which he ardently desired to play away all that he had in life the objects he had lately pursued turned worthless beside her such success as was almost in his grasp he flung away from him like the dirt it was compared with her its pursuit nevertheless if it kept him near her or its renunciation if it took him from her or flight if she shared it or secrecy if she commanded it or any fate or every fate that all was alike to him so that she was true to him the man who had seen how cast away she was whom she had inspired at their first meeting with an admiration and interest of which he had thought himself incapable whom she had received into her confidence who was devoted to her and adored her all this and more in his hurry and in hers in the whirl of her own gratified malice in the dread of being discovered in the rapidly increasing noise of heavy rain among the leaves and a thunderstorm rolling up all this and more in his hurry and in hers in the whirl of her own gratified malice in the dread of being discovered in the rapidly increasing noise of heavy rain among the leaves and a thunderstorm rolling up mrs sparsett received into her mind set off with such an unavoidable halo of confusion and indistinctness that when at length he climbed the fence and led his horse away she was not sure where they were to meet or when except that they had said that it was to be that night but one of them yet remained in the darkness before her and while she tracked that one she must be right oh my dearest love thought mrs sparsett you little think how well attended you are mrs sparsett saw her out of the wood and saw her enter the house what to do next it rained now in a sheet of water mrs sparsett's white stockings were of many colours green predominating 
prickly things were in her shoes caterpillars slung themselves in hammocks of their own making from various parts of her dress rills ran from her bonnet and her roman nose in such condition mrs sparsit stood hidden in the density of the shrubbery considering what next lo louisa coming out of the house hastily cloaked and muffled and stealing away she elopes she falls from the lowermost stair and is swallowed up in the gulf indifferent to the rain and moving with a quick determined step she struck into a side path parallel with the ride mrs sparsit followed in the shadow of the trees at but a short distance for it was not easy to keep a figure in view going quickly through the umbrageous darkness when she stopped to close the side gate without noise mrs sparsit stopped when she went on mrs sparsit went on she went by the way mrs sparsit had come emerged from the green lane crossed the stony road and ascended the wooden steps to the railroad a train for coketown would come through presently mrs sparsit knew so she understood coketown to be her first place of destination in mrs sparsit's limp and streaming state no extensive precautions were necessary to change her usual appearance but she stopped under the lee of the station wall tumbled her shawl into a new shape and put it on over her bonnet so disguised she had no fear of being recognised when she followed up the railroad steps and paid her money in the small office louisa sat waiting in a corner mrs sparsit sat waiting in another corner both listened to the thunder which was loud and to the rain as it washed off the roof and pattered on to the parapets of the arches two or three lamps were rained and blown out and so both saw the lightning to advantage as it quivered and zigzagged on the iron tracks the seizure of the station with a fit of trembling gradually deepening into a complaint of the heart announced the train fire and steam and smoke and red light a hiss a crash a bell and a shriek louisa put into one carriage mrs sparsit put into another the little station a desert speck in the thunderstorm though her teeth chattered in her head from wet and cold mrs sparsit exulted hugely the figure had plunged down the precipice and she felt herself as it were attending on the body could she who had been so active in the getting up of the funeral triumph do less than exult she'll be at coketown long before him thought mrs sparsit though his horse is never so good where will she wait for him and where will they go together patience we shall see the tremendous rain occasioned infinite confusion when the train stopped at its destination gutters and pipes had burst drains had overflowed and streets were under water in the first instant of alighting mrs sparsit turned her distracted eyes towards the waiting coaches which were in great request she will get into one she considered and will be away before i can follow in another at all risks of being run over i must see the number and hear the order given to the coachman but mrs sparsit was wrong in her calculation louisa got into no coach and was already gone the black eyes kept upon the railroad carriage in which she had travelled settled upon it a moment too late the door not being opened after several minutes mrs sparsit passed it and repassed it saw nothing looked in and found it empty wet through and through with her feet squelching and squashing in her shoes whenever she moved 
with a rash of rain upon her classical visage with a bonnet like an overripe fig with all her clothes spoiled with damp impressions of every button string and hook and eye she wore printed off upon her highly connected back with a stagnant verdure on her general exterior such as accumulates on an old park fence in a mouldy lane mrs sparsit had no resource but to burst into tears of bitterness and say i have lost her chapter twenty eight the national dustmen after entertaining one another with a great many noisy little fights among themselves had dispersed for the present and mr gradgrind was at home for the vacation he sat writing in the room with the deadly statistical clock proving something no doubt probably in the main that the good samaritan was a bad economist the noise of the rain did not disturb him much but it attracted his attention sufficiently to make him raise his head sometimes as if he were rather remonstrating with the elements when it thundered very loudly he glanced towards coketown having it in his mind that some of the tall chimneys might be struck by lightning the thunder was rolling into distance and the rain was pouring down like a deluge when the door of his room opened he looked round the lamp on his table and saw with amazement his eldest daughter louisa father i want to speak to you what is the matter how strange you look and good heaven said mr gradgrind wondering more and more have you come here exposed to this storm she put her hands to her dress as if she hardly knew yes then she uncovered her head and letting her cloak and hood fall where they might stood looking at him so colourless so dishevelled so defiant and despairing that he was afraid of her what is it i conjure you louisa tell me what is the matter she dropped into a chair before him and put her cold hand on his arm father you've trained me from my cradle yes louisa i curse the hour in which i was born to such a destiny he looked at her in doubt and dread vacantly repeating curse the hour curse the hour how could you give me life and take from me all the inappreciable things that raise it from the state of conscious death where are the graces of my soul where are the sentiments of my heart what have you done o oh father what have you done with the garden that should have bloomed once in this great wilderness here she struck herself with both her hands upon her bosom if it had ever been here its ashes alone would save me from the void in which my whole life sinks i did not mean to say this but father you remember the last time we conversed in this room he had been so wholly unprepared for what he heard now that it was with difficulty he answered yes louisa what has risen to my lips now would have risen to my lips then if you'd given me a moment's help i don't reproach you father what you've never nurtured in me you've never nurtured in yourself but oh if you'd only done so long ago or if you had only neglected me what a much better and much happier creature i should have been this day on hearing this after all his care he bowed his head upon his hand and groaned aloud father if you had known when we were last together here what even i feared while i strove against it as it has been my task from infancy to strive against every natural prompting that has arisen in my heart if you had known that there lingered in my breast sensibilities affections weaknesses capable of being cherished into strength 
defying all calculations ever made by man and no more known to his arithmetic than his creator is would you have given me to the husband who i am now so sure that i hate he said no no my poor child would you have doomed me at any time to the frost and blight that have hardened and spoiled me would you have robbed me for no one's enrichment only for the greater desolation of this world of the immaterial part of my life the spring and summer of my belief my refuge from what is sordid and bad in the real things around me my school in which i should have learned to be more humble and more trusting with them and to hope in my little sphere to make them better oh no 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 louisa yet father if i'd been stone blind if i'd groped my way by my sense of touch and had been free while i knew the shapes and surfaces of things to exercise my fancy somewhat in regard to them i should have been a million times wiser happier more loving more contented more innocent and human in all good respects than i am with the eyes i have now hear what i've come to say he moved to support her with his arm she rising as he did so they stood close together she with a hand upon his shoulder looking fixedly in his face with a hunger and thirst upon me father which have never been for a moment appeased with an ardent impulse towards some region where rules and figures and definitions were not quite absolute i have grown up battling every inch of my way i never knew you were unhappy my child father i always knew it in this strife i have almost repulsed and crushed my better angel into a demon what i have learned has left me doubting misbelieving despising regretting what i have not learned and my dismal resource has been to think that life would soon go by and that nothing in it could be worth the pain and trouble of a contest and you so young louisa he said with pity and i so young in this condition father for i show you now without fear or favour the ordinary deadened state of my mind as i know it you proposed my husband to me i took him i never made a pretence to him or you that i loved him i knew and father you knew and he knew that i never did i was not wholly indifferent for i had a hope of being pleasant and useful to tom i made that wild escape into something visionary and have gradually found out how wild it was but tom had been the subject of all the little imaginative tenderness of my life perhaps he became so because i knew so well how to pity him it matters little now except as it may dispose you to think more leniently of his errors as her father held her in his arm she put her other hand upon his other shoulder and still looking fixedly in his face went on when i was irrevocably married there rose up into rebellion against the tie the old strife made fiercer by all those causes of disparity which arise out of our two individual natures and which no general laws shall ever rule or state for me father until they shall be able to direct the anatomist where to strike his knife into the secrets of my soul louisa he said imploringly for he well remembered what had passed between them in their former interview i do not reproach you father i make no complaint i am here with another object what can i do child ask me what you will i am coming to it father 
chance then threw into my way a new acquaintance a man such as i had had no experience of used to the world light polished easy making no pretences avowing the low estimate of everything that i was half afraid to form in secret conveying to me almost immediately though i don't know how or by what degrees that he understood me and read my thoughts i could not find that he was worse than i there seemed to be a near affinity between us i only wondered it should be worth his while who cared for nothing else to care so much for me for you louisa her father might instinctively have loosened his hold but that he felt her strength departing from her and saw a wild dilating fire in the eyes steadfastly regarding him i say nothing of his plea for claiming my confidence it matters very little how he gained it father he did gain it what you know of the story of my marriage he soon knew just as well her father's face was ashy white and he held her in both his arms i've done no worse i've not disgraced you but if you ask me whether i have loved him or do love him i tell you plainly father that it may be so i don't know she took her hands suddenly from his shoulders and pressed them both upon her side while in her face not like itself and in her figure drawn up resolute to finish by a last effort what she had to say the feelings long suppressed broke loose this night my husband being away he's been with me declaring himself my lover this minute he expects me for i could release myself of his presence by no other means i do not know that i'm sorry i do not know that i'm ashamed i do not know that i'm degraded in my own esteem all that i know is your philosophy and your teaching will not save me now father you've brought me to this save me by some other means he tightened his hold in time to prevent her sinking on the floor but she cried out in a terrible voice i shall die if you hold me let me fall upon the ground and he laid her down there and saw the pride of his heart and the triumph of his system lying in an insensible heap at his feet end of part 16「Household Words – A Weekly Journal」Saturday, July 22nd, 1854 Chapter 29 Louisa awoke from a torpor, and her eyes languidly opened on her old bed at home and her old room. It seemed at first as if all that had happened since the days when these objects were familiar to her were the shadows of a dream but gradually as the objects became more real to her sight the events became more real to her mind she could scarcely move her head for pain and heaviness her eyes were strained and sore and she was very weak a curious passive inattention had such possession of her that the presence of her little sister in the room did not attract her notice for some time even when their eyes had met, and her sister had approached the bed, Louisa lay for minutes, looking at her in silence, and suffering her timidly to hold her passive hand, before she asked, When was I brought to this room? Last night, Louisa. Who brought me here? Sissy, I believe. 
why do you believe so because i found her here this morning she didn't come to my bedside to wake me as she always does and i went to look for her she was not in her own room either and i went looking for her all over the house until i found her here taking care of you and cooling your head will you see father sissy said i was to tell him when you woke what a beaming face you have jane said louisa as her younger sister timidly still bent down to kiss her have i i'm very glad you think so i'm sure it must be sissy's doing the arm louisa had begun to twine about her neck unbent itself you can tell father if you will then staying her a moment she said it was you who made my room so cheerful and gave it this look of welcome oh no louisa it was done before i came it was louisa turned upon her pillow and heard no more when her sister had withdrawn she turned her head back again and lay with her face towards the door until it opened and her father entered he had a jaded anxious look upon him and his hand usually steady trembled in hers he sat down at the side of the bed tenderly asking how she was and dwelling on the necessity of her keeping very quiet after her agitation and exposure to the weather last night he spoke in a subdued and troubled voice very different from his usual dictatorial manner and was often at a loss for words my dear louisa my poor daughter he was so much at a loss at that place that he stopped altogether he tried again my unfortunate child the place was so difficult to get over that he tried again it would be hopeless for me louisa to endeavour to tell you how overwhelmed i have been and still am by what broke upon me last night the ground on which i stand has ceased to be solid under my feet the only support on which i leaned and the strength of which it seemed and still does seem impossible to question has given way in an instant i am stunned by these discoveries i have no selfish meaning in what i say but i find the shock of what broke upon me last night to be very heavy indeed she could give him no comfort herein she had suffered the wreck of her whole life upon the rock i will not say louisa that if you had by any happy chance undeceived me some time ago it would have been better for us both better for your peace and better for mine for i am sensible that it may not have been a part of my system to invite any confidence of that kind i have proved my my system to myself and i have rigidly administered it and i must bear the responsibility of its failures i only entreat you to believe my favourite child that i have meant to do right he said it earnestly and to do him justice he had engaging fathomless deeps with his little mean excise rod and in staggering over the universe with his rusty stiff-legged compasses he had meant to do great things within the limits of his short tether he had tumbled about annihilating the flowers of existence with greater singleness of purpose than many of the blatant personages whose company he kept i am well assured of what you say father i know i have been your favourite child i know you have intended to make me happy i have never blamed you and i never shall he took her outstretched hand and retained it in his my dear i have remained all night at my table pondering again and again on what has so painfully passed between us when i consider your character when i consider that what has been known to me for hours has been concealed by you for years when i consider under what immediate pressure it has been forced from you at last i come to the conclusion 
that I cannot but mistrust myself. He might have added more than all when he saw the face now looking at him. He did add it in effect, perhaps, as he softly moved her scattered hair from her forehead with his hand. Such little actions, slight in another man, were very noticeable in him, and his daughter received them as if they had been words of contrition. But, said Mr. Gradgrind slowly, and with hesitation, as well as with a wretched sense of helplessness, if I see reason to mistrust myself for the past, Louisa, I should also mistrust myself for the present and the future. To speak unreservedly to you, I do. I am far from feeling convinced now, however differently I might have felt only this time yesterday, that I am fit for the trust you repose in me, that I know how to respond to the appeal you have come home to make to me, that I have the right instinct, supposing it for the moment to be some quality of that nature, how to help you and to set you right, my child. She had turned upon her pillow and lay with her face upon her arm, so that he could not see it. All her wildness and passion had subsided, but though softened, she was not in tears. Her father was changed in nothing so much as in the respect that he would have been glad to see her in tears. Some persons hold, he pursued, still hesitating, that there is a wisdom of the head, and that there is a wisdom of the heart. I have not supposed so, but as I have said, I mistrust myself now. I have supposed the head to be all-sufficient. It may not be all-sufficient. How can I venture this morning to say that it is? If that other kind of wisdom should be what I have neglected, and should be the instinct that is wanted, Louisa. He suggested it very doubtfully, as if he were half unwilling to admit it even now. She made him no answer, lying before him on her bed, still half-dressed, much as he had seen her lying on the floor of his room last night. Louisa, and his hand rested on her hair again, I have been absent from here, my dear, a good deal of late, and though your sister's training has been pursued according to the system, he appeared to come to that word with great reluctance always, it has necessarily been modified by daily associations begun, in her case, at an early age. I ask you, ignorantly and humbly, my daughter, for the better, do you think? Father, she replied without stirring, if any harmony has been awakened in her young breast that was mute in mine until it turned to discord, let her thank heaven for it, and go upon her happier way, taking it as her greatest blessing that she has avoided my way. Oh, my child, my child, he said in a forlorn manner, I am an unhappy man to see you thus. What avails it to me that you do not reproach me if I so bitterly reproach myself? He bent his head, and spoke low to her. Louisa, I have a misgiving that some change may have been slowly working about me in this house, by mere love and gratitude, that what the head had left undone and could not do, the heart may have been doing silently. Can it be so? She made him no reply. I'm not too proud to believe it, Louisa. How could I be so arrogant, and you before me? Can it be so? Is it so, my dear? He looked upon her once more, lying cast away there, and without another word went out of the room. He had not been long gone when she heard a light tread near the door, and knew that someone stood beside her. She did not raise her head. A dull anger that she should be seen in her distress, and that the involuntary look she had so resented should come to this fulfilment, 
smouldered within her like an unwholesome fire all closely imprisoned forces rend and destroy the air that would be healthful to the earth the water that would enrich it the heat that would ripen it tear it when caged up so in her bosom even now the strongest qualities she possessed long turned upon themselves became a heap of obduracy that rose against a friend it was well that soft touch came upon her neck and that she understood herself to be supposed to have fallen asleep the sympathetic hand did not claim her resentment let it lie there let it lie so it lay there warming into life a crowd of gentler thoughts and she lay still as she softened with the quiet and the consciousness of being so watched some tears made their way into her eyes the face touched hers and she knew that there were tears upon it too and she the cause of them as louisa feigned to rouse herself and sat up sissy retired so that she stood placidly near the bedside i hope i've not disturbed you i've come to ask if you'll let me stay with you why should you stay with me my sister will miss you you're everything to her am i returned sissy shaking her head i would be something to you if i might what said louisa almost sternly whatever you want most if i could be that at all events i would like to try to be as near it as i can and however far off that may be i will never tire of trying will you let me my father sent you to ask me no indeed replied sissy he told me that i might come in now but he sent me away from the room this morning or at least she hesitated and stopped at least what said louisa with her searching eyes upon her i thought it best myself that i should be sent away for i felt very uncertain whether you would like to find me here have i always hated you so much i hope not for i've always loved you and i've always wished that you should know it but you changed to me a little shortly before you left home not that i wondered at it you knew so much and i knew so little and it was natural in many ways going as you were among other friends that i had nothing to complain of and was not at all hurt her colour rose as she said it modestly and hurriedly louisa understood the loving pretence and her heart smote her may i try said sissy emboldened to raise her hand to the neck that was insensibly drooping towards her louisa taking down the hand that would have embraced her in another moment held it in one of hers and answered first sissy do you know what i am i am so proud and so hardened so confused and troubled so resentful and unjust to every one and to myself that everything is stormy dark and wicked to me does not that repel you no i am so unhappy and all that should have made me otherwise is so laid waste that if i had been bereft of sense to this hour and instead of being as learned as you think me had begun to acquire the simplest truths i could not want a guide to peace contentment honour all the good of which i am quite devoid more abjectly than i do does not that repel you no in the innocence of her brave affection and the brimming up of her old devoted spirit the once deserted girl shone like a beautiful light upon the darkness of the other louisa raised the hand that it might clasp her neck and join its fellow there she fell upon her knees and clinging to this stroller's child looked up at her almost with veneration 
forgive me pity me help me have compassion on my great need and let me lay this head of mine upon a loving heart oh lay it here cried cissy lay it here my dear chapter thirty mr james harthouse passed a whole night and a day in a state of so much hurry that the world with its best glass in its eye would scarcely have recognised him during that insane interval as the brother jem of the honourable and jocular member he was positively agitated he several times spoke with an emphasis similar to the vulgar manner he went in and went out in an unaccountable way like a man with an object he rode like a highwayman in a word he was so horribly bored by existing circumstances that he forgot to go in for boredom in the manner prescribed by the authorities after putting his horse at coketown through the storm as if it were a leap he waited up all night from time to time ringing his bell with the greatest fury charging the porter who kept watch with delinquency in withholding letters or messages that could not fail to have been entrusted to him and demanding restitution on the spot the dawn coming the morning coming and the day coming and neither message nor letter coming with either he went down to the country house there the report was mr bounderby away and mrs bounderby in town left for town suddenly last evening not even known to be gone until receipt of message importing that her return was not to be expected for the present in these circumstances he had nothing for it but to follow her to town he went to the house in town mrs bounderby not there he looked in at the bank mr bounderby away and mrs sparsit away mrs sparsit away who could have been reduced to the sudden extremity for the company of that griffin well i don't know said tom who had his own reasons for being uneasy about it she was off somewhere at daybreak this morning she's always full of mystery i hate her so i do that white chap he's always got his blinking eyes upon a fellow where were you last night tom where was i last night said tom come i like that i was waiting for you mr harthouse till it came down as i never saw it come down before where was i too where were you you mean i was prevented from coming detained detained murmured tom two of us were detained i was detained looking for you till i lost every train but the mail it would have been a pleasant job to go down by that on such a night and have to walk home through a pond i was obliged to sleep in town after all where where why in my own bed at bounderby's did you see your sister how the deuce returned tom staring could i see my sister when she was fifteen miles off cursing these quick retorts of the young gentleman to whom he was so true a friend mr harthouse disembarrassed himself of that interview with the smallest conceivable amount of ceremony and debated for the hundredth time what all this could mean he made only one thing clear it was that whether she was in town or out of town whether he had been premature with her who was so hard to comprehend or she had lost courage or they were discovered or some mischance or mistake at present incomprehensible had occurred he must remain to confront his fortune whatever it was the hotel where he was known to live when condemned to that region of blackness was the stake to which he was tied as to all the rest what will be will be 
so whether i am waiting for a hostile message or an assignation or a penitent remonstrance or an impromptu wrestle with my friend bounderby in the lancashire manner which would seem as likely as anything else in the present state of affairs i'll dine said mr james harthouse bounderby has the advantage in point of weight and if anything of a british nature is to come off between us it may be as well to be in training therefore he rang the bell and tossing himself negligently on a sofa ordered some dinner at six with a beefsteak in it and got through the intervening time as well as he could that was not particularly well for he remained in the greatest perplexity and as the hours went on and no kind of explanation offered itself his perplexity augmented at compound interest however he took affairs as coolly as it was in human nature to do and entertained himself with the facetious idea of the training more than once it wouldn't be bad he yawned at one time to give the waiter five shillings and throw him at another time it occurred to him or a fellow of about thirteen or fourteen stone might be hired by the hour but these jests did not tell materially on the afternoon or his suspense and sooth to say they both lagged fearfully it was impossible even before dinner to avoid often walking about in the pattern of the carpet looking out of the window listening at the door for footsteps and occasionally becoming rather hot when any steps approached that room but after dinner when the day turned to twilight and the twilight turned to night and still no communication was made to him it began to be as he expressed it like the holy office and slow torture however still true to his conviction that indifference was the genuine high breeding the only conviction he had he seized this crisis as the opportunity for ordering candles and a newspaper he had been trying in vain for half an hour to read this newspaper when the waiter appeared and said at once mysteriously and apologetically beg your pardon sir you're wanted sir if you please a general recollection that this was the kind of thing the police said to the swell mob caused mr harthouse to ask the waiter in return with bristling indignation what the devil he meant by wanted beg your pardon sir young lady outside sir which is to see you outside where outside this door sir giving the waiter to the personage before mentioned as a blockhead duly qualified for that consignment mr harthouse hurried into the gallery a young woman whom he had never seen stood there plainly dressed very quiet very pretty as he conducted her into the room and placed a chair for her he observed by the light of the candles that she was even prettier than he had at first believed her face was innocent and youthful and his expression remarkably pleasant she was not afraid of him or in any way disconcerted she seemed to have her mind entirely preoccupied with the occasion of her visit and to have substituted that consideration for herself i speak to mr harthouse she said when they were alone to mr harthouse he added in his mind and you speak to him with the most confining eyes i ever saw and the most earnest voice though so quiet i ever heard if i do not understand and i do not sir said cissy what your honour as a gentleman binds you to in other matters the blood really rose in his face as she began in these words i'm sure i may rely upon it to keep my visit secret and to keep secret what i'm going to say 
I will rely upon it, if you will tell me I may so far trust you. You may, I assure you. I'm young, as you see. I'm alone, as you see. In coming to you, sir, I have no advice or encouragement beyond my own hope. He thought, but that is very strong, as he followed the momentary upward glance of her eyes. He thought, besides, this is a very odd beginning. I don't see where we are going. I think, said Sissy, you have already guessed whom I left just now. I have been in the greatest concern and uneasiness during the last four and twenty hours, which have appeared as many years, he returned, on a lady's account. The hopes I have been encouraged to form that you come from that lady do not deceive me, I trust. I left her within an hour, at her father's. Mr. Harthouse's face lengthened in spite of his coolness, and his perplexity increased. Then I certainly, he thought, do not see where we are going. She hurried there last night. She arrived there in great agitation, and was insensible all through the night. I live at her father's and was with her. You may be sure, sir, you will never see her again as long as you live. Mr. Harthouse drew a long breath, and, if ever man found himself in the position of not knowing what to say, made the discovery beyond all question that he was so circumstanced. The childlike ingenuousness with which his visitor spoke, her modest fearlessness, her truthfulness which put all artifice aside, her entire forgetfulness of herself in her earnest quiet holding to the object with which she had come, all this, together with her reliance on his easily given promise, which in itself shamed him, presented something in which he was so inexperienced, and against which he knew any of his usual weapons would fall so powerless that not a word could he rally to his relief. At last, he said, so startling an announcement, so confidently made, and by such lips, is really disconcerting in the last degree. May I be permitted to inquire if you are charged to convey that information to me in those hopeless words, by the lady of whom we speak? I have no charge from her. The drowning man catches at the straw. With no disrespect for your judgment, and with no doubt of your sincerity, excuse my saying that I cling to the belief that there is yet hope that I am not condemned to perpetual exile from that lady's presence. There's not the least hope, sir. The first object of my coming here, sir, is to assure you that you must believe that there is no more hope of your ever speaking with her again than there would be if she had died when she came home last night. Must believe? But if I can't, or if I should, by infirmity of nature, be obstinate, and won't? It's still true. There's no hope. James Harthouse looked at her with an incredulous smile upon his lips, but her mind looked over and beyond him, and the smile was quite thrown away. He bit his lip, and took a little time for consideration. Well, if it should unhappily appear, he said, after due pains and duty on my part, that I am brought to a position so desolate as this banishment, I shall not become the lady's persecutor. But you said you had no commission from her. I have only the commission of my love for her and her love for me. I have no other trust than that I have been with her since she came home and that she has given me her confidence. I have no further trust than that I know something of her character and her marriage. Oh, Mr. Harthouse, I think you had that trust too. He was touched in the cavity where his heart should have been, 
in that nest of addled eggs where the birds of heaven would have lived if they had not been whistled away by the fervour of this reproach i am not a moral sort of fellow he said and i never make any pretensions to the character of a moral sort of fellow i am as immoral as need be at the same time in bringing any distress upon the lady who is the subject of the present conversation or in unfortunately compromising her in any way or in committing myself by any expression of sentiments towards her not perfectly reconcilable with in fact with the domestic hearth or in taking any advantage of her father's being a machine or of her brother's being a whelp or of her husband's being a bear i beg to be allowed to assure you that i have had no particularly evil intentions but have glided on from one step to another with a smoothness so perfectly irresistible that i had not the slightest idea the catalogue was half so long until i began to turn it over whereas i find said mr james harthouse in conclusion that it is really in several volumes though he said all this in his frivolous way the way seemed for that once a conscious polishing of but an ugly surface he was silent for a moment and then proceeded with a more self-possessed air though with traces of vexation and disappointment that would not be polished out after what has been just now represented to me in a manner i find it impossible to doubt i know of hardly any other source from which i could have accepted it so readily i feel bound to say to you in whom the confidence you have mentioned has been reposed that i cannot refuse to contemplate the possibility however unexpected of my seeing the lady no more i am solely to blame for the thing having come to this and-and i cannot say he added rather hard up for a general peroration that i have any sanguine expectation of ever becoming a moral sort of fellow or that i have any belief in any moral sort of fellow whatever cissy's face sufficiently showed that her appeal to him was not finished you spoke he resumed as she raised her eyes to him again of your first object i may assume that there is a second to be mentioned yes will you oblige me by confiding it mr harthouse returned cissy with a blending of gentleness and steadiness that quite defeated him and a simple confidence in his being bound to do what she required that held him at a singular disadvantage the only reparation that remains with you is to leave here immediately and finally i am quite sure that you can mitigate in no other way the wrong and harm you have done i am quite sure that it is the only compensation you have left in your power to make i do not say that it is much or that it is enough but it is something and it is necessary therefore though without any other authority than i have given you and even without the knowledge of any other person than yourself and myself i ask you to depart from this place to-night under an obligation never to return to it if she had asserted any influence over him beyond her plain faith in the truth and right of what she said if she had concealed the least doubt or irresolution or had harboured for the best purpose any reserve or pretence if she had shown or felt the lightest trace of any sensitiveness to his ridicule or his astonishment or any remonstrance he might offer he would have carried it against her at this point but he could as easily have changed a clear sky by looking at it in surprise as affect her but do you know he asked quite at a loss the extent of what you ask 
you probably are not aware that i am here on a public kind of business preposterous enough in itself but which i have gone in for and sworn by and am supposed to be devoted to in quite a desperate manner you probably are not aware of that but i assure you it's the fact it had no effect on sissy fact or no fact besides which said mr harthouse taking a turn or two across the room dubiously it's so alarmingly absurd it would make a man so ridiculous after going in for these fellows to back out in such an incomprehensible way i'm quite sure repeated sissy that it is the only reparation in your power sir i'm quite sure or i would not have come here he glanced at her face and walked about again upon my soul i don't know what to say so immensely absurd it fell to his lot now to stipulate for secrecy if i were to do such a very ridiculous thing he said stopping again presently and leaning against the chimney-piece it could only be in the most infallible confidence i will trust to you sir returned sissy and you will trust to me his leaning against the chimney-piece reminded him of the night with the whelp it was the self-same chimney-piece and somehow he felt as if he were the whelp to-night he could make no way at all i suppose a man was never placed in a more ridiculous position he said after looking down and looking up and laughing and frowning and walking off and walking back again but i see no way out of it what will be will be this will be i suppose i must take off myself i imagine in short i engage to do it cissy rose she was not surprised by the result but she was happy in it and her face beamed brightly you will permit me to say continued mr james harthouse that i doubt if any other ambassador or ambassadress could have addressed me with the same success i must not only regard myself as being in a very ridiculous position but as being vanquished at all points will you allow me the privilege of remembering my enemy's name my name said the ambassadress the only name i could possibly care to know to-night sissy jupe pardon my curiosity at parting related to the family i am only a poor girl returned sissy i was separated from my father he was only a stroller and taken pity on by mr gradgrind i have lived in the house ever since she was gone it wanted this to complete the defeat said mr james harthouse sinking with a resigned air on the sofa after standing transfixed a little while the defeat may now be considered perfectly accomplished only a poor girl only a stroller only james harthouse made nothing of only james harthouse a great pyramid of failure the great pyramid put it into his head to go up the nile he took a pen upon the instant and wrote the following note in appropriate hieroglyphics to his brother dear jack all up at coketown bored out of the place and going in for camels affectionately jem he rang the bell send my fellow here gone to bed sir tell him to get up and pack up he wrote two more notes one to mr bounderby announcing his retirement from that part of the country and showing where he would be found for the next fortnight the other similar in effect to mr gradgrind almost as soon as the ink was dry upon their superscriptions 
he had left the tall chimneys of Coketown behind, and was in a railway carriage, tearing and glaring over the dark landscape. The moral sort of fellows might suppose that Mr. James Harthouse derived some comfortable reflections afterwards from this prompt retreat, as one of his few actions that made any amends for anything, and as a token to himself that he had escaped the climax of a very bad business. But it was not so at all. A secret sense of having failed and been ridiculous, a dread of what other fellows who went in for similar sorts of things would say at his expense, if they knew it, so oppressed him that what was about the very best passage in his life was the one of all others he would not have owned to on any account, and the only one that made him ashamed of himself. End of part 17「Household Words, a Weekly Journal」Saturday, July the 29th, 1854 Chapter 31 The indefatigable Mrs. Sparsett, with a violent cold upon her, her voice reduced to a whisper, and her stately frame so racked by continual sneezes that it seemed in danger of dismemberment, gave chase to her patron until she found him in the metropolis, and there, majestically sweeping in upon him at his hotel in St. James's Street, exploded the combustibles with which she was charged and blew up. Having executed her mission with infinite relish, this high-minded woman then fainted away on Mr. Bounderby's coat collar. Mr. Bounderby's first procedure was to shake Mrs. Sparsit off and leave her to progress as she might through various stages of suffering on the floor. He next had recourse to the administration of potent restoratives, such as screwing the patient's thumbs, smiting her hands, abundantly watering her face, and inserting salt in her mouth. When these attentions had recovered her, which they speedily did, he hustled her into a fast train without offering any other refreshment and carried her back to Coketown, more dead than alive. Regarded as a classical ruin, Mrs. Sparsit was an interesting spectacle on her arrival at her journey's end, but considered in any other light, the amount of damage she had by that time sustained was excessive and impaired her claims to admiration. Utterly heedless of the wear and tear of her clothes and constitution, and adamant to her pathetic sneezes, Mr. Bounderby immediately crammed her into a coach and bore her off to Stone Lodge. Now, Tom Gradgrind, said Bounderby, bursting into his father-in-law's room late at night. Here's a lady here, Mrs. Sparsit, you know Mrs. Sparsit, who has something to say to you that will strike you dumb. You've missed my letter, exclaimed Mr. Gradgrind, surprised by the apparition. Missed your letter, sir, bawled Bounderby. The present time is no time for letters. No man shall talk to Josiah Bounderby of Corktown about letters, with his mind in the state it's in now. Bounderby, said Mr. Gradgrind, in a tone of temperate remonstrance, I speak to you of a very special letter I've written to you, in reference to Louisa. Tom Gradgrind, replied Bounderby knocking the flat of his hands several times with great vehemence on the table. I speak of a very special messenger that's come to me in reference to Louisa, 
Mrs. Sparsit, ma'am, stand forward. That unfortunate lady, hereupon essaying to offer testimony, without any voice and with painful gestures, expressive of an inflamed throat, became so aggravating and underwent so many facial contortions that Mr. Bounderby, unable to bear it, seized her by the arm and shook her. "'If you can't get it out, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'leave me to get it out. "'This is not a time for a lady, however connected, "'to be totally inaudible and seemingly swallowing marbles. "'Tom Gradgrind, Mrs. Sparsit, latterly found herself, by accident, "'in a situation to overhear a conversation out of doors "'between your daughter and your precious gentleman friend, "'Mr. James Harthouse.' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Gradgrind. "'Ah, indeed,' cried Bounderby. "'And in that conversation—' "'It is not necessary to repeat its tenor, Bounderby. "'I know what passed.' "'You do?' "'Perhaps,' said Bounderby, "'staring with all his might at his so quiet and assuasive father-in-law. "'You know where your daughter is at the present time?' "'Undoubtedly. She's here.' Here? My dear Bounderby, let me beg you to restrain these loud outbreaks on all accounts. Louisa is here. The moment she could detach herself from that interview with the person of whom you speak, and whom I deeply regret to have been the means of introducing to you, Louisa hurried here for protection. I myself had not been at home many hours when I received her here in this room. She hurried by the train to town. She ran from town to this house through a raging storm and presented herself before me in a state of distraction. Of course, she has remained here ever since. Let me entreat you, for your own sake and for hers, to be more quiet. Mr. Bounderby silently gazed about him for some moments, in every direction except Mrs. Sparsit's direction, and then, abruptly turning upon the niece of Lady Scadgers, said to that wretched woman, now, ma'am, we shall be happy to hear any little apology you may think proper to offer for going about the country at express pace with no other luggage than a cock and a bull, ma'am. Sir, whispered Mrs. Sparsit, my nerves are at present too much shaken, and my health is at present too much impaired in your service to admit of my doing more than taking refuge in tears which she did. "'Well, ma'am,' said Bounderby, "'without making any observation to you "'that may not be made with propriety to a woman of good family, "'what I've got to add to that is "'that there's something else in which it appears to me "'you may take refuge, namely, a coach, "'and the coach in which we came here being at the door, "'you'll allow me to hand you down to it "'and pack you home to the bank, "'where the best course for you to pursue will be to put your feet into the hottest water you can bear, and take a glass of scalding rum and butter after you get into bed. With these words, Mr. Bounderby extended his right hand to the weeping lady, and escorted her to the conveyance in question, shedding many plaintive sneezes by the way. He soon returned, alone. Now, as you showed me in your face, Tom Gradgrind, that you wanted to speak to me, he resumed. Here I am, but I'm not in a very agreeable state, I tell you plainly. Not relishing this business, even as it is, 
are not considering that I am at any time as dutifully and submissively treated by your daughter as Josiah Bounderby of Corktown ought to be treated by his wife. You have your opinion, I dare say, and I have mine, I know. If you mean to say anything to me tonight that goes against this candid remark, you had better let it alone. Mr. Gradgrind, it will be observed, being much softened, Mr. Bounderby took particular pains to harden himself at all points. It was his amiable nature. My dear Bounderby, Mr. Gradgrind began in reply. Now, you'll excuse me, said Bounderby, but I don't want to be too dear. That, to start with, when I begin to be dear to a man, I generally find that his intention is to come over me. I'm not speaking to you politely, but as you're aware, I'm not polite. If you like politeness, you know where to get it. You have your gentlemen friends, you know, and they'll serve you with as much of the article as you want. I don't keep it myself. Bounderby, urged Mr. Gradgrind, we are all liable to mistakes. I thought you couldn't make em, interrupted Bounderby. Perhaps I thought so, but I say we are all liable to mistakes, and I should feel sensible of your delicacy and grateful for it if you would spare me these references to Harthouse. I shall not associate him in our conversation with your intimacy and encouragement. Pray do not persist in connecting him with mine. I've never mentioned his name, said Bounderby, returned Mr. Gradgrind. Well, well, returned Mr. Gradgrind, with a patient, even a submissive air, and he sat for a little while pondering. Bounderby, I see reason to doubt whether we have ever quite understood Louisa. Who do you mean by we? Let me say I, then, he returned, in answer to the coarsely blurted question. I doubt whether I have understood Louisa. I doubt whether I have been quite right in the manner of her education. There you hit it, returned Bounderby. There I agree with you. You've found it out at last, have you? Education! I'll tell you what education is. To be tumbled out of doors, neck and crop, and put upon the shortest allowance of everything except blows. That's what I call education. I think your good sense will perceive, Mr. Gradgrind remonstrated in all humility, that whatever the merits of such a system may be, it would be difficult of general application to girls. I don't say it at all, sir, returned the obstinate Bounderby. Well, sighed Mr. Gradgrind, we will not enter into the question. I assure you, I have no desire to be controversial. I seek to repair what is amiss if I possibly can, and I hope that you will assist me in a good spirit, Bounderby, for I have been very much distressed. I don't understand you yet, said Bounderby, with determined obstinacy, and therefore I won't make any promises. In the course of a few hours, my dear Bounderby, Mr. Gradgrind proceeded, in the same depressed and propitiatory manner. I appear to myself to have become better informed as to Louisa's character than in previous years. The enlightenment has been painfully forced upon me, and the discovery is not mine. I think there are, Bounderby, you'll be surprised to hear me say this, I think there are qualities in Louisa which, which have been harshly neglected and, and a little perverted, and, and I would suggest to you that, that if you would kindly meet me in a timely endeavour to leave her to her better nature for a while, and to encourage it to develop itself by tenderness and consideration, it, 
it would be better for the happiness of all of us louisa said mr gradgrind shading his face with his hand has always been my favourite child the blusterous bounderby crimsoned and swelled to such an extent on hearing these words that he seemed to be and probably was on the brink of a fit with his very ears a bright purple shot with crimson he pent up his indignation however and said you'd like to keep her here for a time i i had intended to recommend my dear bounderby that you should allow louisa to remain here on a visit and be attended by sissy i mean of course cecilia jupe who understands her and in whom she trusts i gather from all this tom gradgrind said bounderby standing up with his hands in his pockets that you are of the opinion that there's what people call some incompatibility between lou bounderby and myself i fear there is at present a general incompatibility between louisa and and almost all the relations in which i have placed her was her father's sorrowful reply now look you here tom gradgrind said bounderby the flushed confronting him with his legs wide apart his hands deeper in his pockets and his hair like a hayfield wherein his windy anger was boisterous you have had your say i'm going to say mine i'm a corktown man i am josiah bounderby of corktown i know the bricks of this town and i know the works of this town and i know the chimneys of this town and i know the smoke of this town and i know the hands of this town i know them all pretty well they're real when a man tells me anything about imaginative qualities i always tell that man whoever he is that i know what he means he means turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon and that he wants to be set up with a coach and six that's what your daughter wants since you are of opinion that she ought to have what she wants i recommend you to provide it for her because tom gradgrind she will never have it from me bounderby said mr gradgrind i hoped after my entreaty you would have taken a different tone just wait a bit retorted bounderby you've had your say i believe i heard you out hear me out if you please don't make yourself a spectacle of unfairness as well as inconsistency because although i'm sorry to see tom gradgrind reduced to his present position i should be doubly sorry to see him brought so low as that now there's an incompatibility of some sort or another i'm given to understand by you between your daughter and me i'll give you to understand in reply to that that there unquestionably is an incompatibility of the first magnitude to be summed up in this that your daughter don't properly know her husband's merits and is not impressed with such a sense as would become a by george of the honour of his alliance that's plain speaking i hope bounderby urged mr gradgrind this is unreasonable is it said bounderby i'm glad to hear you say so because when tom gradgrind with his new lights tells me that what i say is unreasonable i'm convinced at once it must be devilish sensible with your permission i am going on you know my origin and you know that for a good many years of my life i didn't want a shoeing horn in consequence of not having a shoe yet you may believe or not as you think proper 
that there are ladies, born ladies, belonging to families, families, who next to worship the ground I walk on. He discharged this like a rocket at his father-in-law's head. Whereas your daughter, proceeded Bounderby, is far from being a born lady. That you know yourself. Not that I care a pinch of candle snuff about such things, for you are very well aware I don't. But that such is the fact, and you, Tom Gradgrind, can't change it. Why do I say this? Not, I fear, observed Mr. Gradgrind in a low voice, to spare me. Hear me out, said Bounderby, and refrain from cutting in till your turn comes round. I say this because highly connected females have been astonished to see the way in which your daughter has conducted herself and to witness her insensibility. They have wondered how I have suffered it, and I wonder myself now, and I won't suffer it. Bounderby, returned Mr. Gradgrind, rising. The less we say tonight, the better, I think. On the contrary, Tom Gradgrind, the more we say tonight, the better, I think. That is, the consideration checked him, till I've said all I mean to say, and then I don't care how soon we stop. I come to a question that may shorten the business. What do you mean by the proposal you made just now? What do I mean, Bounderby? By your visiting proposition, said Bounderby, with an inflexible jerk of the hayfield. I mean that I hope you may be induced to arrange in a friendly manner for allowing Louisa a period of repose and reflection here, which may tend to a gradual alteration for the better in many respects. To a softening down of your ideas of the incompatibility, said Bounderby. If you put it in those terms. What made you think of this? said Bounderby. I've already said, I fear Louisa has not been understood. Is it asking too much, Bounderby, that you, so far her elder, should aid in trying to set her right? You've accepted a great charge of her, for better, for worse, for... Mr. Bounderby may have been annoyed by the repetition of his own words to Stephen Blackpool, but he cut the quotation short with an angry start. Come, said he, I don't want to be told about that. I know what I took her for as well as you do. Never you mind what I took her for. That's my lookout. I was merely going on to remark, Bounderby, that we may all be more or less in the wrong, not even excepting you, and that some yielding on your part, remembering the trust you have accepted, may not only be an act of true kindness, but perhaps a debt incurred towards Louisa. I think differently, blustered Bounderby. I'm going to finish this business according to my own opinions. Now I don't want to make a quarrel of it with you, Tom Gradgrind. To tell you the truth, I don't think it would be worthy of my reputation to quarrel on such a subject. As to your gentleman friend, he may take himself off wherever he likes best. If he falls in my way, I shall tell him in mind. If he don't fall in my way, I shan't, for it won't be worth me while to do it. I see a daughter, whom I made Lou Bounderby, and might have done better by leaving Lou Gradgrind. If she don't come home tomorrow by twelve o'clock at noon, I shall understand that she prefers to stay away, and I shall send a wearing apparel and so forth over here, and you'll take charge of her for the future. What I shall say to people in general, of the incompatibility that led to my soul laying down the law, will be this. I am Josiah Bounderby, 
and I had my bringing up. She's the daughter of Tom Gradgrind, and she had her bringing up, and the two horses wouldn't pull together. I'm pretty well known to be rather an uncommon man, I believe, and most people will understand fast enough that it must be a woman rather out of the common also, who in the long run would come up to my mark. Let me seriously entreat you to reconsider this, Bounderby, urged Mr. Gradgrind, before you commit yourself to such a decision. I always come to a decision, said Bounderby, tossing his hat on, and whatever I do, I do at once. I shall be surprised at Tom Gradgrind's addressing such a remark to Josiah Bounderby of Corktown, knowing what he knows of him. If I could be surprised by anything Tom Gradgrind did, after his making himself a party to sentimental humbug. I have given you my decision, and I have got no more to say. Good night. So Mr. Bounderby went home to his townhouse to bed. At five minutes past twelve o'clock next day, he directed Mrs. Bounderby's property to be carefully packed up and sent to Tom Gradgrind's, advertised his country retreat for sale by private contract, and resumed a bachelor life. Chapter 32 The robbery at the bank had not languished before, and did not cease to occupy a front place in the attention of the principal of that establishment now. In boastful proof of his promptitude and activity, as a remarkable man, and a self-made man, and a commercial wonder more admirable than Venus, who had risen out of the mud instead of the sea, he liked to show how little his domestic affairs abated his business ardour. Consequently, in the first few weeks of his resumed bachelorhood, he even advanced upon his usual display of bustle, and every day made such a rout in renewing his investigations into the robbery, that the officers who had it in hand almost wished it had never been committed. They were at fault too, and off the scent, although they had been so quiet since the first outbreak of the matter, really did suppose it to have been abandoned as hopeless. Nothing new occurred. No implicated man or woman took untimely courage, or made a self-betraying step. More remarkable yet, Stephen Blackpool could not be heard of, and the mysterious old woman remained a mystery. Things having come to this pass, and showing no latent signs of stirring beyond it, the upshot of Mr. Bounderby's investigations was that he resolved to hazard a bold burst. He drew up a placard offering twenty pounds reward for the apprehension of Stephen Blackpool, suspected of complicity in the robbery of the Coketown Bank on such a night. He described the said Stephen Blackpool by dress, complexion, estimated height and manner as minutely as he could. He recited how he had left the town and in what direction he had been last seen going. He had the whole printed in great black letters on a staring broadsheet and he caused the walls to be posted with it in the dead of night, so that it should strike upon the sight of the whole population at one blow. The factory bells had need to ring their loudest that morning to disperse the groups of workers who stood in the tardy daybreak, collected round the placards, devouring them with eager eyes. Not the least eager of the eyes assembled were the eyes of those who could not read. These people, as they listened to the friendly voice that read aloud, there was always some such ready to help them, stared at the characters which meant so much, with a vague awe and respect that would have been half ludicrous 
if any aspects of public ignorance could ever be otherwise than threatening and full of evil many ears and eyes were busy with a vision of the matter of these placards among turning spindles rattling looms and whirring wheels for hours afterwards and when the hands cleared out again into the streets there were still as many readers as before slackbridge the delegate had to address his audience too that night and slackbridge had obtained a clean bill from the printer and had brought it into his pocket oh my friends and fellow countrymen the downtrodden operatives of coketown oh my fellow brothers and fellow workmen and fellow citizens and fellow men what a to-do was there when slackbridge unfolded what he called that damning document and held it up to the gaze and for the execration of the working man community oh my fellow men behold of what a traitor in the camp of those great spirits who are enrolled upon the holy scroll of justice and of union is appropriately capable oh my prostrate friends with a galling yoke of tyrants on your neck and the iron foot of despotism treading down your fallen forms into the dust of the earth upon which right glad would your oppressors be to see you creeping on your bellies all the days of your lives like the serpent in the garden oh my brothers and shall i as a man not add my sisters too what do you say now of stephen blackpool with a slight stoop in his shoulders and about five foot seven in height as set forth in this degrading and disgusting document this blighting bill this pernicious placard this abominable advertisement and with what majesty of denouncement will you crush the viper who would bring this stain and shame upon the godlike race that happily has cast him out for ever yes my compatriots happily cast him out and sent him forth for you remember how he stood here before you on this platform you remember how face to face and foot to foot i pursued him through all his intricate windings you remember how he sneaked and slunk and sidled and splitted of straws until with not an inch of ground to which to cling i hurled him out from amongst us an object for the undying finger of scorn to point at and for the avenging fire of every free and thinking mind to scorch and sear and now my friends my labouring friends for i rejoice and triumph in that stigma my friends whose hard but honest beds are made in toil and whose scanty but independent pots are boiled in hardship and now i say my friends what appellation has that dastard craven taken to himself when with a mask torn from his features he stands before us in all his native deformity a what a thief a plunderer a prescribed fugitive with a price upon his head a fester and a wound upon the noble character of the coketown operative therefore my band of brothers in a sacred bond to which your children and your children's children yet unborn have set their infant hands and seals i propose to you on the part of the united aggregate tribunal ever watchful for your welfare ever zealous for your benefit that this meeting does resolve that stephen blackpool weaver referred to in this placard having been already solemnly disowned by the community of coketown hands the same are free from the shame of his misdeeds and cannot as a class 
be reproached with his dishonest actions. Thus Slackbridge, gnashing and perspiring after a prodigious sort. A few stern voices called out, No! and a score or two hailed with assenting cries of, Hear, hear! The caution from one man, Slackbridge, you're all iterant. You're a-going too fast. But these were pygmies against an army. The general assemblage subscribed to the gospel according to Slackbridge, and gave three cheers for him, as he sat demonstratively panting at them. These men and women were yet in the streets, passing quietly to their homes, when Sissy, who had been called away from Louisa some minutes before, returned. "'Who is it?' asked Louisa. "'It's Mr. Bounderby,' said Sissy, timid of the name. "'And your brother, Mr. Tom, and a young woman who says her name is Rachel, and that you know her.' "'What do they want, Sissy, dear? They want to see you. Rachel has been crying and seems angry.' "'Father,' said Louisa, for he was present, "'I cannot refuse to see them.' for a reason that will explain itself. Shall they come in here? As he answered in the affirmative, Sissy went away to bring them. She reappeared with them directly. Tom was last, and remained standing in the obscurest part of the room near the door. Mrs. Bounderby, said her husband, entering with a cool nod. I don't disturb you, I hope. This is an unseasonable hour, but here is a young woman who has been making statements which render my visit necessary. Tom Gradgrind, as your son, young Tom, refuses for some obstinate reason or other to say anything at all about those statements, good or bad, I am obliged to confront her with your daughter. You've seen me once before, young lady, said Rachel, standing in front of Louisa. Tom coughed. You've seen me, young lady, repeated Rachel, as she did not answer, once before. Tom coughed again. I have. Rachel cast her eyes proudly towards Mr. Bounderby, and said, Will you make it known, young lady, where and who was there? I went to the house where Stephen Blackpool lodged on the night of his discharge from his work, and I saw you there. He was there too, and an old woman who did not speak, and whom I could scarcely see, stood in a dark corner. My brother was with me. "'Why couldn't you say so, young Tom?' demanded Bounderby. "'I promised my sister I wouldn't,' which Louisa hastily confirmed. "'And besides,' said the whelp bitterly, "'she tells her own story so precious well, and so full, "'that what business had I to take it out of her mouth?' "'Say, young lady, if you please,' pursued Rachel, "'why, in an evil hour, you ever come to Stephen's that night?' "'I felt compassion for him,' said Louisa, her colour deepening and I wished to know what he was going to do, and wished to offer him assistance. "'Thank you, ma'am,' said Bounderby. "'Much flattered and obliged.' "'Did you offer him,' said Rachel, "'a bank-note?' "'Yes, but he refused it, and would only take two pounds in gold.' Rachel cast her eyes towards Mr. Bounderby again. "'Oh, certainly,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'If you put the question whether your ridiculous and improbable account was true or not,' I'm bound to say it's confirmed. Young lady, said Rachel, Stephen Blackpool is now named as a thief in public print all over this town, and where else? There have been a meeting tonight where he have been spoken of in the same shameful way. Stephen, the honestest lad, the truest lad, the best. 
her indignation failed her and she broke off sobbing i'm very very sorry said louisa oh young lady young lady returned rachel i hope you may be but i don't know i can't say what you may have done the like of you don't know us don't care for us don't belong to us i'm not sure why you may have come that night i can't tell but what you may have come with some aim of your own not minding to what trouble you brought such as the poor lad i said then bless you for coming and i said it of me heart you seem to take so pitifully to him but i don't know now i don't know louisa could not reproach her for her unjust suspicions she was so faithful to her idea of the man and so afflicted and when i think said rachel through her sobs that the poor lad was so grateful thinking you so good to him when i mind that he put his hand over his hard work and face to hide the tears that you brought up there oh i hope you may be sorry and i know bad cause to be it but i don't know i don't know you're a pretty article growled the whelp moving uneasily in his dark corner to come here with these precious imputations you ought to be bundled out for not knowing how to behave yourself and you would be right rights she said nothing in reply and her low weeping was the only sound that was heard until mr bounderby spoke come said he you know what you've engaged to do you'd better give your mind to that not this deed i am loath returned rachel drying her eyes that any year should see me like this but i won't be seen so again young lady when i had read what's put in print of stephen and what has just as much truth in it as if it had been put in print of you i went straight to the bank to say i knew where stephen was and to give a sure and certain promise that he should be here in two days i couldn't meet with mr bounderby then and your brother sent me away and i tried to find you but you was not to be found and i went back to work soon as i come out of the mill to-night i hastened to hear what was said of stephen for i know we pride he will come back to shame it and then i went again to seek mr bounderby and i found him and i told him every word i knew and he believed no word i said and brought me here so far that's true enough assented mr bounderby with his hands in his pocket and his hat on but i have known you people before to-day you'll observe and i know you never die for want of talking now i recommend you not so much to mind talking just now as doing you have undertaken to do something all i remark upon that at present is do it i have written to stephen by the post that went out this afternoon as i have written to him once before since he went away said rachel and he will be here at furthest in two days then i'll tell you something you're not aware perhaps retorted mr bounderby that you yourself have been looked after now and then not being considered quite free from suspicion in this business on account of most people being judged according to the company they keep the post office hasn't been forgotten either what i'll tell you is that no letter to stephen blackpool has ever got into it therefore what has become of yours i'll leave you to guess perhaps you're mistaken and never wrote any you hadn't been gone from here young lady said rachel turning appealingly to louisa as much as a week when he sent me the only letter i have had from him saying that he was forced to seek work in another name oh by george cried bounderby shaking his head with a whistle 
he changes his name, does he? That's rather unlucky too, for such an immaculate chap. It's considered a little suspicious in courts of justice, I believe, when an innocent happens to have many names. What? said Rachel, with the tears in her eyes again. What? Young lady, in the name of mercy, was left the poor lad to do. The master's against him on one hand, the men against him on the other. He only wanting to work hard in peace and do what he felt right. Can a man have no soul of his own, no mind of his own? Must he go wrong all through with his side, or must he go wrong all through with that, or else be hunted like a hare? Indeed, indeed, I pity him from my heart, returned Louisa, and I hope that he will clear himself. You need have no fear of that, young lady, he is sure. All the sure, I suppose, said Mr. Bounderby, for you're refusing to tell where he is, eh? He shall not, through any act of mine, come back with the unmerited reproach of being brought back. He shall come back of his own accord to clear himself, and put all those that have injured his good character, and he not here for its defence, to shame. I have told him what has been done against him, said Rachel, throwing off all distrust, as a rock throws off the sea, and he will be here at furthest in two days. Notwithstanding which, added Mr. Bounderby, if he can be laid hold of any sooner, he shall have an earlier opportunity of clearing himself. As to you, I have nothing against you, what you came and told me turns out to be true, and I've given you the means of proving it to be true, and there's an end of it. I wish you good night all. I must be off to look a little further into this. Tom came out of his corner when Mr. Bounderby moved, moved with him, kept close to him, and went away with him. The only parting salutation of which he delivered himself was a sulky, Good night, father. With that brief speech and a scowl at his sister, he left the house. Since his sheet-anchor had come home, Mr. Gradgrind had been sparing of speech. He still sat silent, when Louisa mildly said, Rachel, you will not distrust me one day, when you know me better. It goes against me, Rachel answered, in a gentle manner, to mistrust any one. But when I am so mistrusted, when we all are, I cannot keep such things quite out of my mind. I ask your pardon for having done you an injury. I don't think what I said, now. Yet I might come to think it again, with a poor lad so wronged. Did you tell him in your letter, inquired Sissy, that suspicion seemed to have fallen upon him, because he had been seen about the bank at night? He would then know what he would have to explain on coming back, and would be ready. Yes, dear, she returned. But I can't guess what can ever have taken him there. He never used to go there. He was never in his way. His way was the same as mine, and not near it. Sissy had already been at her side, asking her where she lived, and whether she might come to-morrow night to inquire if there were news of him. I doubt, said Rachel, if he can be here till next day. Then I will come next night too, said Sissy. When Rachel, assenting to this, was gone, Mr. Gradgrind lifted up his head, and said to his daughter, Louisa, my dear, I have never, that I know of, seen this man. Do you believe him to be implicated? I think I have believed it, father, though with great difficulty. I do not believe it now. That is to say, you once persuaded yourself to believe it, from knowing him to be suspected. His appearance and manner, are they so honest? Very honest. 
and her confidence not to be shaken i ask myself said mr gradgrind musing does the real culprit know of these accusations where is he who is he his hair had latterly begun to change its colour as he leaned upon his hand again looking grey and old louisa with a face of fear and pity hurriedly went over to him and sat close at his side her eyes by accident met cissy's at the moment cissy flushed and started and louisa put her finger on her lip next night when cissy returned home and told louisa that stephen was not come she told it in a whisper next night again when she came home with the same account and added that he had not been heard of she spoke in the same low frightened tone from the moment of that interchange of looks they never uttered his name or any reference to him aloud nor ever pursued the subject of the robbery nor ever pursued the subject of the robbery when mr gradgrind spoke of it the two appointed days ran out three days and three nights ran out and stephen blackpool was not come and remained unheard of on the fourth day rachel with unabated confidence but considering her dispatch to have miscarried went up to the bank and showed her letter from him with his address at a working colony one of many not upon the main road sixty miles away messengers were sent to that place and the whole town looked for stephen to be brought in next day during this whole time the whelp moved about with mr bounderby like his shadow assisting in all the proceedings he was greatly excited horribly fevered bit his nails down to the quick spoke in a hard rattling voice and with lips that were black and burnt up at the hour when the suspected man was looked for the whelp was at the station offering to wager that he had made off before the arrival of those who were sent in quest of him and that he would not appear the whelp was right the messengers returned alone rachel's letter had gone rachel's letter had been delivered stephen blackpool had decamped in that same hour and no soul knew more of him the only doubt in coketown was whether rachel had written in good faith believing that he really would come back or warning him to fly on this point opinion was divided six days seven days far on into another week the wretched whelp plucked up a ghastly courage and began to grow defiance was the suspected fellow the thief a pretty question if not where was the man and why did he not come back where was the man and why did he not come back in the dead of night the echoes of his own words which had rolled heaven knows how far away in the daytime came back instead and abided by him until morning End of part 18